Our scripture reading will be from 2 Peter, verses 1 through 9. I'll be reading from the ESV. 2 Peter, verses 1 through 9. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, with steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Let me begin by expressing my gratitude for your your prayers, your calls, your texts, your uh, dropping off of food while I dealt with uh, COVID a couple of weeks ago. I'm glad to be recovered, but as you may know, Leah contracted it as well, and she's had a much rougher go of it than I have. Uh, thankfully, last night, she finally slept through the night for the first time without having to get some fever-reducing medicine in the middle of the night. So we're hoping that she's uh, improving. She's battling an ear infection at the same time, so we have kind of a compounded situation going on with her. So keep her in your prayers, and, and also keep Micah in your prayers. She's having the roughest time of all, I think, because she's, uh, she's stuck by herself all day long because Sarah and I are swapping out taking care of Leah and trying not to, to give anything to Micah, and so she's fending for herself downstairs at our house, and thankfully she hasn't burned the house down yet. But... Um, but keep our family in your prayers as we work our way through all this. Um, but it is a blessing to be back today, to be back in person, and uh, to be able to worship the Lord together. I want to start with a story I heard about a guy who was behind a little old lady at a red light. And that light turned green, and that little old lady did not push on the accelerator immediately. She was a little bit slow in moving, and that frustrated this guy to the point that he honked his horn. He didn't just honk his horn. He laid down on his horn. And when that wasn't good enough for him, he raised his fist in the air and started shaking it, and then he rolled down his window, and he shouted out the window, Go! Next thing he knows, there were blue lights behind him. And before he could even move his car, there was a police officer standing next to him demanding that he get out of the car. The police officer took him in and, and put him in handcuffs and put him in the back seat of the patrol car for a few minutes when finally this guy 
pleading, saying, I haven't done anything. I was stopped. There's nothing I've done. All I did was get irritated at the slow-moving car in front of me. And the police officer finally released him and said, I didn't, I didn't arrest you because you were frustrated. I looked and saw on your car. I saw, let me get this correct. I looked at your car. And I saw the cross hanging from your rearview mirror, the Choose Life license plate holder, the fish magnet on your trunk, and the bumper sticker that said, Jesus is coming soon. And I concluded that you must have stolen the car because of the way you were acting. (laughs) Now let me ask you this. How many of you are out there driving with a Buford Church of Christ sticker on the back of your car or magnet? Now, in all honesty, think about how you conduct yourself in comparison to the way you project yourself as a Christian. Have you ever projected yourself one way, but internally acted another way? Have you ever been there? You see, when I heard that story about this guy, the first thing I want to do is is think, oh, he needs to change what he's doing. He needs to change the way he's acting. But in reality, the issue isn't on the surface like that. It's a much deeper issue. There's an issue internally that needs to be changed. See, this year our theme is more. We've chosen this theme because we don't want to be guilty of being comfortable, of being stagnant, of being complacent. So we're challenging ourselves to excel still more based on Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 1. And for most of this year, the more theme is going to uh, relate to what we do. But here at the outset of the year, I want to spend a few weeks studying how more relates to who we are. In other words, we don't just need to do more We need to be more. And so I want to turn your attention to a section of Scripture in 2 Peter chapter 1 where we are instructed to add seven different characteristics or attributes or virtues to our faith. Let's look at this passage again, but this time we're going to focus in on verses 5 through 7 of 2 Peter chapter 1. It says, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. What Peter provides for us here in these few verses are directions for the development of our character, uh, a prescription for spiritual progression a blueprint for building ourselves up from the outside in. I'm sorry, from the inside out. And in so doing, he establishes an expectation of more. Notice that the list starts with faith, but it does not stagnantly remain at faith. There are traits that must be developed. There is maturation that must happen. There is forward momentum that is expected. Without, without specifically using the term, Peter conveyed the concept of more in this passage by telling us that it will take, by telling us what it will take for us to be more spiritually. 
And what I want to do for the next, next few weeks is explore each item in this list so that we can not only comprehend what Peter's talking about, but more importantly, so that we can develop these traits in our own lives. Because we were meant to be more. But before we dive into each one of these characteristics that are mentioned in verses 5 through 7, let's start by looking at what it means to be more. And I think this is the starting point based on what Paul, excuse me, what Peter has to say here. Being more is a response to receiving more. Look again at 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5. It begins with the phrase, for this very reason. This phrase implies that the aforementioned information is the basis for the instructions that are going to follow. So let's look back at verses 3 and 4 of 2 Peter chapter 1 and see what it is that Peter said that's going to affect the instructions that he provides. He says this, beginning in verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, that's a lot of information provided in a nice, long, run-on sentence with some unique terminology that you're not going to find anywhere else in Scripture. But there's a verse... There's a verse that comes after the list of virtues that helps us understand the point of what Peter's saying here in verse 3 and 4. Skip down to verse 9. After listing all these characteristics, these attributes, these virtues that we're to add to our faith, Peter says this in verse 9. He says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. The point Peter is making in verse 3 and 4 is that Jesus has given you everything you need. In Christ, you are blessed beyond measure. In Christ, you have received every spiritual blessing. And that's why you're being challenged to add these things to your faith. It all stems from what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. If you don't add these things, then you've forgotten what he did. And when you look at verse 3 and 4 in this very unique terminology that Peter uses, what he's ultimately saying is that Christ has given us everything we need to live a godly life. Think back to that I think back to what Paul would say about new life. He associated it with our baptism, with that moment that we come in contact with the blood of Jesus that washes away our sins. And he says in Romans chapter 6 that we have been baptized into Christ, buried with him in his death, and just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. Christ has given you a new life. And then you can see in verse 4 that Peter talks about us becoming partakers, partakers of the divine nature. 
And he indicates that we've been provided an escape from the corruption that's in the world. This seems to me to be a, a reference to the gift of the Holy Spirit, that gift we receive when we are immersed in the waters of baptism for the forgiveness of our sins. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38 says that you not only receive forgiveness of sins at that moment, but you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that gift is the dwelling of the Spirit with you. The Spirit that leads you, the Spirit that bears fruit in you. You see, what Peter's trying to communicate in these two verses that lead up to this list of virtues, he's trying to say, look at everything Christ has done for you. Look at what he has produced in you. I think Peter starts here because this is an anti-works righteousness appeal. Before Peter gets to who you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to do, he reminds us that a life of godliness is dependent upon what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And everything thereafter is just our response to what we've received. The way you respond to what God has done for you through Jesus Christ is you try to be more. That's the point that's being made here. And for some of us right now, that's the message we need to hear. We need to be reminded that God has done more for us than we could ever calculate, that we can ever fully appreciate and most importantly, that we could ever potentially reciprocate. God has done more. So shouldn't I respond by being more? And that's where Peter takes us next. Because after revealing that being more is a response to receiving more, he then tells us that being more requires giving more. Let me explain what I mean. Look at verse 5 again. After reminding us of what God has done for us, Peter instructs us to make every effort to add to your faith. Now, if you've paid attention to my preaching over the years, I've referenced that terminology a number of times. I think that phrase, make every effort, might be one of the most important phrases in all of the Bible. Because it's God's way of saying that whatever follows this phrase is so important that I want you to give it your undivided attention. I want it to receive every ounce of your exertion. I want you to pursue it wholehearted devotion. I want every effort to be made toward this. That's what God's saying. And the Greek phrase translated make every effort in this particular passage is quite interesting because it combines one term that means to hasten or to put forth an energetic effort with another term that refers to the contribution you bring alongside that of another. In other words, this statement Make every effort is saying that it should be your top priority. Your top priority to contribute what's your responsibility in conjunction with what God has already brought to the table. Make every effort 
to give what you have to give to this equation. Jesus has given you a new life. Jesus has freed you from the corruption of this world. You should give him everything you've got because he gave you nothing less than everything he had. Now you can't surpass what Christ has done for you. You can't even match what Christ has done for you. But you can give everything. That's what making every effort means. Make every effort means I'm not going to permit any other item on the agenda. I'm not going to prioritize any other assignment. I'm not going to spare any expense. I'm not going to withhold a single drop of sweat, a single second of time. What we're talking about is an anti-bare minimum mindset. Make every effort implies an intentional, sacrificial, maximal effort. The real question, though, is, does make every effort describe your life as a disciple? Because when I journey through Scripture, making every effort is Abraham escorting Isaac to the top of a mountain with the intent of sacrificing him. Making every effort is David hiding out in a cave when, and gets the opportunity to kill Saul, but refuses despite the peer pressure he's under. Because he respects the Lord that much. Making every effort is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refusing to bow down to an idol even though they know they're going to be burned alive for it. Making every effort is four men removing a roof in order to get their paralyzed friend to Jesus. Making every effort is a sinful woman crashing a dinner party just so she can anoint the feet of Jesus. Making every effort is even Zacchaeus climbing a sycamore tree just so he can lay eyes on Jesus. Deep down, you know what making every effort is. Because you've done it somewhere in your life. Maybe for you, making every effort manifested itself in some sort of personal achievement. Maybe it was you in an athletic competition. Maybe you laid it out there on the field or on the court. You made every effort bring about success for your team. Maybe you made every effort when it came to academics and you did everything you could to achieve those grades, to win that scholarship, to receive those accolades. Maybe you've made every effort to advance in your career. Maybe your success financially uh, or in any other realm is because you've made every effort to get there. Maybe you understand make every effort because that's how you got the love of your life. To win the affection of that person who matters most in your life, you made every effort to win them. Or maybe you understand it because you have children. And you know from your experience with your children there's nothing you'd withhold from them. And you made every effort to provide for them to protect them, to give them the, the best life you could. Deep down, you know what making every effort looks like. So the real question is, do you make every effort when it comes to your spiritual growth?
Does your spiritual growth receive the effort that your football team did? Does your spiritual growth receive the effort that your spouse received when you were trying to woo him or her? Does the Lord receive the same level of effort from you that you give to your children or to your job? Because that's what we're called to do. Make every effort. Leave nothing for self. Give it all to God. Sacrifice everything because that's what he deserved since he did that for you. If you want to be more, it starts by saying, I'll give up anything to get there. I won't withhold a thing to be more for the Lord. Every effort. Being more requires us to give more. And it also stems from trusting more. You'll notice in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5, it says, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith. That's the starting point. Faith. Now, to what is Peter referring when he speaks of faith? You know, in the New Testament, sometimes faith can refer to a, a personal trust in the Lord. Sometimes it can refer to the body of Christian doctrine, the, belie- the, uh, the belief system of a disciple, such as the case over in Jude verse 3, where we're instructed to contend for the faith. In this instance, the absence of a definite article before the word faith favors the conclusion that Peter is referencing the trust we place in God. Now, this is important. Because faith is more than just believing in God. Faith is actually believing God. I've talked about the difference between these two before, but I think it's worth repeating today. To believe in someone is an idiomatic way of expressing belief in their existence. To believe someone is to accept that what he or she says is valid, accurate, credible. I believe these two concepts are actually distinguished from one another in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 says, Without faith... It is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. That's believing in God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. And the second part of that says, and believe that he rewards those who seek him. In other words, you've got to believe that he's going to fulfill the promises that he's made to us. That's believing him, taking him at his word. That's the concept of trust. Here's why I bring this up. This list of Christian virtues in 2 Peter chapter 1 is not instructing us to add to our belief that Jesus is the Son of God. It's instructing us to add to our belief in Jesus, our trust in him. That's our starting point. Here's why it's so important that we recognize that Peter's talking about trust. It's because when you trust someone, it affects who you are. 
You know, when Micah was younger, she loved to go to the playground in our neighborhood, and it had this climbing wall on it. And she would climb up that climbing wall as far as she could get, but she couldn't finish it. It was, it was kind of a, a curved climbing wall, had a twist in it that she couldn't maneuver. And when she'd get to the highest point she could, she would just turn around and jump. Not to the ground. She would just turn around and jump because she knew Daddy was behind her and she could be caught. She trusted that no matter what, I'd be ready to catch her. Have you ever experienced that with your kids? When they were little, they would just assume that you will take care of them. You know, that's why us dads, when we've got little ones, we love to throw them up as high as we can, don't we? We throw them and we throw them and our wives are just panicking over there. The thing is, while that kid's in the air, like pictured here on the screen, that kid is having the time of his or her life. Because they trust that they're going to be caught. You see, children trust instinctively. In fact, we expect children to trust instinctively. We have to train them to not trust strangers. Children trust instinctively. What happens is that we become adults and we tighten up. Once we've experienced life a little bit, we get cautious. We see other people get hurt by jumping, and, and some of us have been hurt by jumping ourselves, so we've witnessed the mistakes that have been made when people take jumps, and we've witnessed the consequences of those mistakes. And so we mature, we think. And what we start doing is, instead of just jumping off the playground and being caught by Daddy, we start planning the jumps. We want to know at what rate we're going to jump off, what distance we'll be falling, whether or not the person catching us is strong enough. We begin to plan every detail of the jump. We want to know the facts before we have the faith. And as a result, we start taking only calculated risks. We're not quite the jumpers we used to be, are we? And I think that's why it's so hard for some people to follow Jesus. Like those would-be disciples we talked about last week. I think that's why it's so hard for some of us to give up things for Jesus. Like the rich young ruler who walked away from Jesus sorrowful because it meant giving up his wealth. I think that's why it's so hard for us to make sacrifices, to admit sin, to make changes, to be faithful. It's because we've stopped being risk-taking children who trust their Lord, and we've started being cautious adults who trust our instincts. You see, we have to start with faith. We have to start with trusting the one who gave everything for us. That's the starting point of the being more. If we want to become more, then we've got to become like children again. Children who are willing to jump. If we want to become more, then we have to adhere to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. 
Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, and in all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will make straight your paths. Some of us need to be reminded of this today because some of us have stopped trusting the Lord. Some of us need to be willing to turn things over to Him. Some of us need to be willing to make the sacrifices that are necessary to follow Him. Some of us need to be reminded that faith takes trust. And sometimes you have to take a step of faith. One last thing I want to point out from this passage as we draw this to a close is that being more prevents you from becoming less. After listing the seven attributes that must be added to our faith, Peter explains why such additions are necessary. You have to skip down to verse 8 to see this. It's in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8 that Peter says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, there's your more concept again, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter implies that failure to increase, a failure to add these qualities to your faith, a failure to grow spiritually, a failure to become more, will result in you being deemed ineffective and unfruitful. And you don't want either of those labels. The term ineffective connotes a lack of effort, such as is the case of idleness. In fact, the Greek term used for ineffective can also mean idle, or we would say lazy. Do you remember what happened to the one-talent servant? This guy deliberately chose to be ineffective. Instead of working hard to obtain more for his master, he chose to be idle. He chose to be lazy by burying the resource with which he had been entrusted. When his master called him to give an account of what he had done, he was called wicked and worthless. Matthew chapter 25, verse 26 and verse 30. And because of his worthlessness, his ineffectiveness, he was cast into the outer of darkness where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. You don't want to be deemed or labeled ineffective. But you also don't want to be called unfruitful. Because the term unfruitful connotes a lack of productivity. And do you remember what Jesus said about trees that are unfruitful? In Matthew chapter 7, verse 19, he said, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And in John chapter 15, and verse 2, he said, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit is taken away. You don't want to be labeled unfruitful either. You see, whether you're talking about ineffective or unfruitful, the examples you have in Scripture show people receiving eternal punishment who receive those labels. You don't want to be unfruitful or ineffective. And what Peter says is the only way to ensure that you don't become unfruitful, that you don't become ineffective, is to be more by adding to your faith. See, this morning, we introduce this new series. We prepare ourselves to start looking at the quality 
these that are identified in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5 through 7, because we need to add these to our faith so that we don't face eternal punishment one day. This starts with what God has done for us, but it doesn't end there. We have a part to play. And I'm reminded, I'm reminded of an unfinished statue by Michelangelo called the Rodinini Pieta. The statue depicts Mary cradling the deceased body of Jesus. It was worked on by Michelangelo for more than a decade. In fact, he worked on it just six days before he died. But it's unfinished. Unfinished because he was never satisfied with it. He never could get the stone to cooperate with his plan for it. So it, it never actually became what Michelangelo envisioned it to be. And one art historian said, the artist just wants the stone to become art, but sometimes the stone just wants to stay a stone. You and I are God's work of art. We're called His workmanship in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, and we're told that we're created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. And we can either be a stone that wants to stay a stone or we can be clay in the hands of the potter. See, it's up to us to respond to what he's done for us. It's up to us to decide if we will, in fact, be more. God's already done his part to accomplish that. Now it's time for us to do ours. This morning as we're gathered here, maybe upon hearing what God has done for us, you realize you've never received the benefits of His Son's death, burial, and resurrection. You've never responded to what He's done for you. And maybe today you need to make that decision. Because if you'll put on Christ in baptism and repent of your sins and confess that He is the Son of God, your sins can be washed away, as Peter talked about. Or maybe you're here, and you became a child of God, but you have not become more. And it's time for you to grow, and it's time for you to add to your faith. And you need our help. And you need our prayers. Maybe you're here and you know you need to be more, but it's such a struggle. Maybe you're facing some challenges in life that you just need help with so that you can be more. I don't know what your need is, but I know that we all have them. And so we extend the invitation this morning to everyone who has need. Won't you come while together we stand and sing?